Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the Doctrine of Christ, Part 4. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. In our study of the doctrine of the person of Christ, we've come to the Council of Chalcedon, which in 451 promulgated a statement aimed at settling the controversy between the Alexandrian and the Antiochian schools of Christology. And I want to review with you again this statement before making some comments on it and proceeding. The statement can be found printed on your outlines on page two, um, so I would encourage you to read along with me as I read aloud. Here's what the council declared. We confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial homoousios, with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial, homoousios, with us according to the manhood, like us in all things except sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead. And in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, Theotokos, according to the manhood, one and the same, Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the difference of the natures being by no means taken away because of the union but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person, prosopon, and one subsistence, hypostasis, not divided or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, Word, Lord, Jesus Christ. The Chalcedonian settlement is a ringing endorsement of diophysite, or two natures, Christology. Christ is declared here to exist in two natures, whose distinction remains uh, even after their union in Christ in the Incarnation. Moreover, Apollinarianism is implicitly rejected in the statement that Christ is not only perfect in his deity and is truly God, but is also perfect in his humanity and is truly man, having both a rational soul and body. You remember that Apollinarius denied that Christ's human nature had a rational soul. At the same time, however, in agreement with Monophysite Christology, or One Nature Christology, the settlement insists on there being only one person, one Son, 
in Christ. And thus the excesses of Nestorianism are ruled out. You remember Nestorius was in, uh, accused of having two sons, two persons in Christ, one human and one divine. The words person and hypostasis are taken as synonyms in this statement. You notice that it says that uh, they concur in one person and one subsistence. So the incarnation on this view becomes a kind of mirror image of the Trinity. In the Trinity, there are multiple persons in one nature. In the incarnation, there are multiple natures in one person. So you can see that they're a sort of mirror image of each other. In the Trinity, there are multiple persons in one nature, but in the incarnation, you have multiple natures in one person. I want to draw attention to the uh, series of four adjectives that the settlement uses without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. These serve as a reminder that the two natures of Christ must be kept distinct from each other and not blended together or merged. And moreover, that the unity of Christ's person must not in any way be compromised by separating it or dividing it. So the first two adjectives, without confusion, that is without fusing them together into one thing, that's the, the literal meaning of confusion, without fusing them together into one thing, and without change, are aimed at the Alexandrian tendency to blend the two natures of Christ together as a result of the incarnation. The last two adjectives, without division, without separation, are directed at the Antiochian failure to achieve a true union of the two natures so that they are divided or separated into two persons. And the Chalcedonian settlement makes it very clear that the person of Christ must not in any way be divided or separated into two persons. So as a result of the Council of Chalcedon, it became an imperative of Orthodox Christian theology that we must neither confuse the natures nor divide the person of Christ. You mustn't confuse the natures or divide the person. Now, the Chalcedonian formula doesn't itself tell us how to do this. Uh, it doesn't seek to explain the incarnation. But what it does do is set up, as it were, channel markers for legitimate Christological speculation. Any theory of Christ's person must be one in which the distinctness of the two natures is preserved and both meet in one person, one son in Christ. So that it sets down uh, safe waters, as it were, for speculation about the person of Christ. So long as you do not 
confuse the natures on the one hand or divide the persons on the other, you can navigate safely uh, within the waters of Christological uh, speculation. I think it admirably fulfilled the purpose for which it was drawn up. It doesn't explain the incarnation, but it does exclude two possible but un, uh, unacceptable explanations of the incarnation, namely um, Apollinarianism on the one hand and Nestorianism on the other. And it provides a convenient summary of the essential facts which we must all keep in mind um, when we attempt to penetrate still further into the mystery of the incarnation. Any discussion then or questions about the Chalcedonian statement? Yes, we'll start with Taiwan. Dr. Craig, um, it is Jesus so uh, on a mission uh, when the on, um, chapter John chapter 10 um, I, I'm sorry, I have a little trouble reading today. Um, that's verse, um, what is it, 30? Uh, it says, Jesus answered, it is, is it not written in your law, I said you are God? If those to whom the word of God can, uh, came, uh, sorry, can you read that for me? I, my no, eyes are... Uh, you need your reading small. glasses today. Oh, David yes. doesn't have his either. Okay, so someone can someone help me yeah, read John it? 10, 30, uh, 29, and 30? Okay, who, who can read the passage aloud for us? Jesus answered, is it, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If those to whom the word of God came were gods, and the scripture cannot be annulled, can you say that the one whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world is blaspheming because he said, I am God's son. Okay. And apparently that was a quote from a psalm, uh -huh. one of the psalms, that you are God's. Okay. And, and talking about, uh, I, I think uh, to, to, to blend all this um, Jesus' divine nature and human nature, and this is how I see it. Uh, we are created in God's likeness and image. So we have that divine nature if we choose to align ourselves to God. And so we can live out that likeness and Im image. Uh -huh. So, but because we have not chosen that route to align ourselves as Jesus has completely aligned with God, so his human nature is submissive to his divine nature where we are the other way around. And and does that explain the the two nature and blend and we all have the potential that's why he's the first fruit. And we, if we learn to follow Jesus' example and, and have our human nature submit to uh, divine nature, and we will be, as Psalmist says, uh, God in a little g um, sense. Yeah, I would really resist that kind of reading of that Taiwan. Um, if we literally share in the divine nature in the way that we're talking about here, 
that would mean that each of us is omnipotent, omniscient, morally perfect, omnipresent, and all the rest. Um, because those are essential properties of God. That is the divine nature. Remember when we talked about the attributes of God, we saw that God possesses all of those superlative attributes. And Not the little g God, no, the, right. the big well, g God. Well, but then we shouldn't say of the little g God that it has the divine nature or possesses the divine nature um, because it, it doesn't. It's a creature. It's created, whereas God is uncreated, exists necessarily, is self-existent, and none of those things is true of the little g. But God. then how do you explain this passage? Well, I take it that Jesus is reasoning from sort of the, the, the lesser to the greater. If these human beings can be called gods, uh, why, should he, why should they be offended that Jesus calls himself God? Um, but he is more truly God than these persons who are addressed in the, or by the psalmist. Um, in the Old Testament, Hebrew kings and holy men could be called God's sons, but they weren't literally thought to be God in the way that the New Testament thinks that Jesus is fully God, fully divine. So I wouldn't take, as you say, th that passage to mean God with a capital G. No, no. Um, we're clearly creatures mm -hmm. who, who don't share in the divine nature Otherwise, we would have two natures, and we would be like Christ, who has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. We have only a human nature, and we want that human nature to be perfected and sanctified and to become Christ-like in its moral properties, and that will happen over time as we submit to him. As you, I, I, I affirm what you say about submitting to Christ, submitting to the Holy Spirit, and then as he does his sanctifying work in him, we will become more Christ-like in our character. But we'll never become necessary, self-existent, omnipotent beings. No, but will we, do you, do you say that we will live up to the image and likeness he create us to be? Yes, I think that's right. Okay. In, in, in the... In, in the final state, and uh, we may not arrive there in this life, but in the afterlife, we will. But we'll still be creatures. We'll st we still won't have a divine nature. Yes, Taylor. Uh, is Apollinarianism and uh, Nestor uh, uh, Nestorianism, uh, sorry, uh, Nestorianism, is that uh, uh, a heresy? Is that heretical? Well, they, they are heresies um, because they were condemned. Uh, yes, each one was condemned by the church, so they are literally counted by the church as heresies. Yes, Steve? So I think we have to be very careful on how we limit what the scripture says because it says to whom the scripture of the spirit comes they're God so that's truly God that comes into us and so uh, be careful because it says we'll be changed as we see him now exactly when that happens so we'll be in the same image as him and also it says we overcome and actually rule with him so we need to be careful we don't exclude ourselves from the salvation he is delivering to all of us fair enough and when we talk about 
the doctrine of man later on. We will talk about what it means to be in the image of God and for us to be increasingly conformed to Christ's image through God's sanctifying work in our lives. But I think that we need to insist very, very strongly that that dividing line between creator and creature is never erased. We're not going to be deified in the sense that we become God. In, in, in a literal sense, that's nonsense because to be God, you have to be eternally God. You have to be necessarily God. And for a human being to be deified would be incoherent um, because if you're God, you're always God. You can't become God. Yes, Eric? Um, now, there are modern-day churches like the Coptic Church that are non-Chalcedonian. Yes. So, um, can you say anything about what part of it they reject and how that affects their Christology? Well, the Coptic Church is uh, primarily to be found in Egypt. It's a very, very ancient Christian confession, and it reflects the Alexandrian school of theology, um, and therefore tends to be more monophysite. And as you say, they don't agree with this. This is a settlement that was agreed to by Catholics and then later Orthodox and Protestants adhered to it, but not Coptics. I have to say that uh, Coptic Christians have written to me uh, personally chastising me for saying they don't agree to um, two-nature Christology. Uh, but so far as I understand this tradition, it does reject the Chalcedonian statement and would say that even if Christ had two distinct natures, that in the incarnation somehow these are blended into one divine human nature. Um, so they tend to be in the Alexandrian strain of Christianity. Bruce? Yeah, we had touched on this uh, uh, before you left as being a trichotomist, but I see body, soul, and spirit and in Christ, that as being human. And in Christ, the spiritual essence is the Son. And that's what makes him distinct. So he, has, he is both yeah. divine and fully divine and fully human. And this okay, now that's very, very like what Apollinarius said. And so the question will be, and we'll take this up, whether or not this viewpoint can be formulated in such a way as to avoid the errors of Apollinarianism. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. I, 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 that, that's, that's good to put on the table, but I think it right. answers the question where in John, you know, he says, I have a body, I can take it up and lay it down. Yes. And it satisfies where in Timothy it says, we have the salvation, the gospel in Christ before the foundation of the world. Well, you know, he's got this body <laughs> parked somewhere. <laughs> Before and after, or can park it. Uh, well, and, yeah. Uh, no, wait a minute. Before, before well, what? Not before his birth. You don't mean that, do you? Well, he says he's got this before the foundation of the world. He's he's established this. Well, now, you see don't the, you think that the body of Jesus was conceived? Oh, yeah. In Mary's the, the, womb. The, that the, it didn't exist prior to that. No, but he. There were theophanies prior to that. Okay. And then he he he. He identified with a specific body in, in the incarnation, mm -hmm. in a specific person in okay. Christ. But he says in John 10, which is after the, the crucifixion, resurrection, that I have a body, I can take it up and lay it down. So he's 
for, for our purposes, we see God through Christ eternally, but as far as the Son is concerned, he doesn't necessarily have to stay, uh, he doesn't have to stay embodied. Uh -huh. uh, as I read John, you know, this, this is for our benefit and, yes. and, and how he reflects himself to us, but not that he has to exist that way. Uh, okay, well, you're raising additional issues that are of interest, like the resurrection and the role that that plays in Christ's permanent possession of a human nature, permanently being incarnate. And we'll talk about that later on. But with regard to your trichotomous view of human nature, the question will be, can that be formulated in such a way that it doesn't fall into the errors of Apollinarianism that were condemned? Okay, somebody else. Jim down here, perhaps? Could you <clears throat> please explain what Paul means by we are partakers of the divine nature then? Right. This, there are, I know we're not deified. Exactly. It doesn't mean that we become God and that we become, as I say, literally necessary, self-existent, eternal, omnipotent, and so forth. I think it means that we come to share in immortality and Christ-likeness in our characters so that we do become godlike in some ways. Um, but we mustn't blur the distinction between creator and creature. That surely is not Paul's meaning. Yes, Dr. Bob? Uh, <clears throat> I studied this little passage recently, and uh, Psalm 82 uh, gives the image of, if you look at 82.1, it says, God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. The image that in the commentaries that I saw, and it seems to fit with the uh, word study, Elohim is, Elohim is the word that's used there. But when it's used in the plurals, it refers to rulers. So the image is uh -huh. he's kind of talking to the rulers, and he's not satisfied with their rulers, that, that, uh, with their judgments. If you go a little bit later, a little bit um, subsequently, verse 6, Psalm 82, 6, I said, you are gods, Elohim. You are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere men. You will fall hmm. like, and here's the key, every other ruler. Yes. Okay? So I think that the, the term, the God's there, it makes no sense to say that they're, first of all, it's in the multiple, you know, we have one God. So right. when it's used multiple, in the lexicon I use, the most common usage by far is for human rulers. Yes. And, and as I say, Hebrew kings were um, not infrequently referred to as sons of God um, and here as gods. And I think you're quite right that this is talking about mere mortal creatures that, as you say, will die like the other rulers. Well, let's um, proceed. Um, I'm going to skip over the Protestant Reformation. During the Reformation, the old debate between Antioch and Alexandria replayed itself um, in debates between the Reformed theologians following John Calvin and the Lutheran theologians following Martin Luther. The Lutheran theologians tended to be more Alexandrian. Um, they 
tended to think of the divine attributes as being communicated over to the human nature and so uh, fell into uh, danger of blurring or confusing the natures. The reformed thinkers, on the other hand, were more like Antioch. They insisted very strongly on the distinctness and separation of the two natures so that there wasn't any kind of communication of attributes between the divine and human natures. I want to jump rather to the 19th century where we do confront a radical new school of Christology. And this is known as kenotic Christology. It comes from the Greek word kenosis, which means uh, an emptying. It is used in Philippians 2, 5 to 7, to characterize Christ's incarnation. There you remember Paul says that Christ did not consider equality uh, with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a servant. And canonic theology uh, um, attempted to exploit this idea of Christ's emptying himself in taking on human nature. So we can define canonicism as the view according to which Christ in the incarnation ceased to possess certain attributes of deity. Uh, in order that he could become truly human. He literally gave up some of the divine attributes uh, in order to become a human being. Now this raises all sorts of questions about the extent of the kenosis. How far did this emptying go? Um, it raises questions about the relationship between the logos, the second person of the Trinity, and the man uh, Jesus. And it also raises questions about the status of the divine attributes as to which could be given up and which uh, could not be surrendered. And canonic theologians uh, uh, answered these questions in various ways. Now canonicism represents a uh, non-Chalcedonian approach to Christology. Why? because it holds that the Logos in becoming incarnate changed in his nature. Whereas you remember the Council of Chalcedon says that this is without change. And yet, according to the canonic theologians, the Logos did change in becoming incarnate. Now this raises the question as to whether or not canonicism didn't in fact imply a denial of the deity of the incarnate Christ. Uh, if he gave up divine attributes, then even if he was the same person after the incarnation, had he thereby ceased to be God? D.M. Bailey, in his book, God Was in Christ, asks, and I quote, Does Christianity then teach that God changed into a man? That at a certain point of time, God was transformed into a human being for a period of about 30 years, it is hardly necessary to say that the Christian doctrine of the incarnation means nothing like that. It would be grotesque to suggest that the incarnation has anything in common with the metamorphoses of ancient pagan mythology. 
in these metamorphoses, remember, Zeus could turn into a swan or he could turn himself into a bull um, or other sorts of embodied forms. And uh, Bailey protests that this would be grotesque to think of the incarnation as being like these metamorphoses in ancient pagan mythology. He says the deity and humanity of Christ are not merely successive stages, as if he had first been God, then man, then after the days of his flesh were past, God again, with the manhood left behind. No, the doctrine of the incarnation is the doctrine that Christ was God and man simultaneously. But Bailey therefore charges that kenosis, while affirming that the Son of God keeps his personal identity in becoming human, um, nevertheless, he's divested himself of the distinctly divine attributes, so that in becoming human, he ceased to be divine. If Jesus is in every sense human, then the kenotic theologian is in the position of saying that God has turned himself into a human being, which seems absurd. So I think the deeper question raised by canonic Christology is the content of the divine nature. That is to say, the question as to which properties are essential to deity, to divinity. Bailey holds that any change in God is an essential change from deity. But it's exactly at this point that the canonic theologians question the traditional doctrine. They argue that many of God's most prominent attributes, such as omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, are merely contingent properties of God, not essential properties. And therefore, he could give up these properties and still remain God. So the decisive question then that we'll face in trying to assess canonic Christology is um, going to be whether or not so radical a change as they envision, divesting oneself of omnipotence, omniscience, uh, and omnipresence, is merely an accidental change in God that is compatible with his divine nature, or whether or not Bailey is correct, that this would be an essential change in God, and therefore Christ would cease to be God in undergoing such a change. Any comments or questions then on canonic Christology? Yes. Thanks. Uh, that's not been my understanding of what people who hold to the, hold to the kenosis mean by the kenosis. They, they, uh, my understanding is that they don't believe that Christ gave up those uh -huh. omni-attributes of omniscience and omnipotence and so forth, but rather that he simply willed not to use them. It would be like uh, it would be like a person who is seeing, uh, not, not making themselves blind, but instead simply choosing to close their eyes for a while. Yes. Okay, um, I mentioned that canonic theologians had a variety of views, and there were moderate canonicists who would say, that in his incarnation, Christ still had the properties of omniscience, omnipotence, uh, and all the rest, but he simply didn't use them. 
And that really was a position that many of the Reformed theologians held as well, who were not canonicists. Sometimes uh, they would talk about an occultatio, a sort of um, masking of the divine attributes so that Christ appeared to be weak, mortal, um, and all the rest of it. But in fact, he was eternal, uh, omnipotent, omnipresent God. But on the other hand, Kevin, it, it simply is true, and I could give you references that um, many of the canonicists did say that in becoming incarnate, Christ didn't just relinquish the use of his attributes. He gave up these attributes. He divested himself of these divine attributes in order to become incarnate. And so I'm talking about this more radical type of canonicism than the view that would simply say he refrained from using them. So then the, the more moderate view that I'm describing, is that okay? Is that in accord with the Chalcedonian? Yes, I, I think it is. And as I say, many of the Reformed theologians would say something like that, that he freely relinquished use of some of his divine attributes. Okay? Yes. Cash. So what I'm wondering is... Um, you know the uh, the thought here being that these uh, attributes of God are contingent. How does how does he divest himself of this? Like, well, like, well, what have they put forth that is the way that God can just throw off certain uh, attributes of His own? That like, and how and how is He God? Like, how do they account for that? I mean, it, it just as you said a little bit previously, that it just doesn't make any sense to say that something is God if it doesn't have these necessary attributes of, of being God. Yeah. I'm obviously pretty unsympathetic with <laughs> canonical <too>. Christology. <laughs> but uh, let's take omnipresence, perhaps. That might be the easiest one to imagine divesting oneself of. The logos without a body is immaterial, and therefore omnipresent in the sense that he's knowledgeable of and causally active at every point in space. But now in virtue of taking a human body that had a certain stature and a certain location in time and in history and in geography, one could say he is no longer omnipresent, but he shrunk down to this location in Galilee. Um, and I, I think that that's not obviously incoherent to say something like that. Um, how you could give up omnipotence is more difficult because if you kept the power to get it back again, then you really haven't given it up because omnipotence is a modal property. It's what you're able to do. And so if you are able to get it back, you're still able to do those things. And so you're still omnipotent. So that's more difficult I think a, a task, but um, these are really good questions. Well, and then I would follow that up to them by saying, like, how did he do miracles if he was uh, if, if if he let go of that? How do, does a emptied divine nature that is not there anymore that you're just a human? How is he able to pull off turning water into wine, walking well, on water? What, what some uh, the canonic theologians could say is that he didn't do these in virtue of his own divine nature that it was through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit 
that it was other persons of the Trinity who wrought these miracles through Christ um, rather than drawing on his own power of his divine nature. Yes, Steve. Okay, Elizabeth. I was curious about how a canonic theologian would reconcile Colossians 1 um, with the concept of Christ emptying himself. Okay. With In Colossians 1 where it's talking about uh, Christ, it says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then if you jump down several verses, it says in verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. So if all Right, and, and I think Colossians 2.7, doesn't it say that the whole fullness of deity dwells in him bodily? Mm-hmm. Right? It yes. actually says bodily. And that is an extraordinary statement to think that the whole fullness of deity is somehow bodily encapsulated in Christ. I, I think that you're quite right that this is a proof text that um, really shipwrecks canonicism. Yes, Steve. Um, what about Mark thirteen thirty two that says, "But as but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the yeah. angels in heaven nor the Son." Right now, this Father. is a great example of where it seems Christ has relinquished omniscience. Uh, he doesn't know the date of his second coming says the angels don't know, no human knows, and, and I don't know. The son doesn't know. And so this would be a verse to which the canonic theologian would appeal to say, look, he's relinquished omniscience during his incarnation. So we'll have to talk about that when we make a proposed model of the incarnation to see if we can make sense of that. Okay, Don. Bill, the question in my mind is the centurion who came to gain healing for his servant. Mm-hmm. And he told Jesus, no, no, you don't need to come. Just say the word and he'll be healed. That implies to me that Jesus didn't have to bodily go anywhere to do things. Mm. That's not something most people can do. Right, and there he does appeal to Christ's authority, right? Not God or someone else who said, I'm a man set under authority. I say to this soldier, go here, and he goes, go there, and he goes, say the word. And it seems as though Christ in his own authority is able to work a miracle at a distance, uh, which would be hard uh, for a canonic theologian to explain. Okay, I think there was one more question uh, over here, and then we'll close for today. Yes. Um, If the Alexandrian is uh, akin to Lutheran and the Antiochian is akin to a Calvinist, where would the canonic in a more modern faith be found? Well, I suppose it the, the analogy might, uh, now here I'm speaking off the top of my head, the analogy might be to more liberal theologians who would deny the deity of Christ. Like Say again. Like religious science? I'm not familiar with what you mean by that. Um, but there are certainly 
liberal theologians today who would deny that Christ had a divine nature and see him as simply a man. And perhaps that would be the closest analogy to canonicism today in that it um, would seem to imagine Christ didn't have these attributes of deity. But it would be disanalogous in that they would say he never had them, so it wasn't a matter of divesting himself of anything, um, just that he didn't have them. All right, well, let's uh, close with a benediction, shall we? And now may the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ guide you into the fullness of his will and into sanctification in his Son. Amen. The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.